1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power
2: to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
2: Welcome back to the Slate Culture Gab Fest Hamlet on Steroids Edition. I'm your host, Isaac Butler, in for Stephen Metcalf. On today's show, The Northman is the long-simmering passion project from star Alexander Skarsgård and writer-director Robert Eggers. It's a quite literally visceral version of the Nordic Revenge saga, as well as a new version of the story of Amleth, which famously served as the source material for Shakespeare's Hamlet. How does this deeply researched and visually astounding bonanza of violence measure up to other adaptations? We'll discuss. Then... We rarely revisit TV shows here on Culture Gab Fest, but the second season of Russian Doll cries out for a revisit now that Natasha Lyonne has taken near-total creative control over the project, showrunning, frequently directing episodes, and starring as the time-traveling, aging, counter Nadia, who tries to correct traumas that occurred before she was even born. It's a deliberately messier season of TV and we'll examine how it reimagines the Netflix hit. Finally, Be Real is the new social media app that attempts to force users to be more authentic by having them post unfiltered photographs of whatever they happen to be doing whenever the app tells them to. Is this a solution to the myriad problems of performance that plague existing platforms? Slate's Rebecca Onion will join us to discuss. And I'm joined today by by Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the Los Angeles Times. Julia, are you living authentically out there in Los Angeles?
1: Absolutely, and always, as we all do (laughs) here in the most authentic
2: of cities. Yes, it's what it's famous for. (laughs) Uh, And I'm also joined by Slate's film critic and the author of Cameraman, Dana Stevens. Dana, I hear you have a couple of events coming up.
3: Yes, Isaac, thanks for asking about that, because a few listeners have written or tweeted at me saying, why don't you announce your events earlier? Somebody in Boston was saying you didn't announce it. The show did not drop until the actual day of the event, which I agree. Nobody should have to change their day plan in order to rush out and see me. So I wanted to take this chance to say that I will be in the Bay Area next weekend doing cameraman events. I'm doing two different things. I'm introducing a movie at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival on Saturday. And on Sunday, I'm having a little conversation with some film clips from Keaton movies with David Thompson, the eminent film critic who lives in the Bay Area. So there's more information about that on my Twitter feed. It's my pinned tweet if you go there and look for it. You can also look up those events online, of course. But please, if you're in the Bay Area, come out and see me and we'll try to chat and hang out after.
2: And we should also say that if you hear a little extra frisson of joy in each other's company in this week's episode, it is because actually Dana and I were in Los Angeles and hung out with Julia Turner, IRL as the kids say, at her house.
3: I know. Speaking of authenticity, man, it was in the flesh dinner chomping. I mean, like we used to do in the in the early days.
2: I know. Amazing. Amazing. It was magic.
1: And it gave us an excuse to force Isaac to cook us beets. Yeah. So, you know, all the boxes were
2: checked. You know, I made those beets as soon as I came home as well. I was like, I'm on a beets kick now. Deal with it, family. <laughs> uh, anyway, shall we do a show? Let's go. The Northman is an ultra-violent, an ultra-meticulously researched take on the story of Amleth, an ancient tale of revenge that, among other things, serves as the basis for Shakespeare's Hamlet. In it, Alexander Skarsgård's Amleth seeks to avenge the murder of his father, King Arvindil, played by Ethan Hawke. The problem? The murderer is Amleth's uncle, Fjolnir, played by Claus Bang. And Fjolnir has married Amleth's mother, Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Amleth disguises himself as a slave, gets sold to Fjolnir, and then gradually, with the help of a Russian witch named Olga, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, and the all-father Odin, begins to wreak his horrific revenge. In this clip, we'll hear the confrontation between Fjolnir and Arvindil right before the former kills the latter. Let's take a listen.
1: You behold your brother's case in amazement. I knew well you would. Pity you never paid a bastard's
2: eyes heed before. Now, behold how swiftly your brother swings his sword.
0: Strike,
4: brother. Strike. But know that bearing a stolen ring makes no effort. Soaked in my
1: blood. will soon be sliding off your arm like a serpent. Your kingdom will
4: not last. Let this misdeed haunt your living nights. Till a flaming vengeance gorges on your death.
2: Strike. Strike! Dana, you wrote a very funny review of this film for Slate in which it seems like while you admire a lot about the movie, it doesn't quite cohere. Is that accurate? Is that kind of how you felt about it?
3: Yeah. I mean, I I would have a hard time saying that this movie is not artfully done. And I think if you can groove somewhat on that clip, that is very much the flavor of the movie, even though one of the two characters, the Ethan Hawke character, as you pointed out, disappears immediately after that clip. It has that sort of proto-Shakespearean rhythm to the dialogue without actually being exactly good dialogue. It has really cool music that you can hear in that clip. It's extremely violent, as you can hear in that clip of one brother about to behead another. And... It is pretty much what it purports to be in the trailer and in publicity material uh, surrounding the run-up of the movie, which is a very gory retelling of the Hamlet myth that is maybe low on uh, analysis or exploration of that myth, but is very long on historical research about Vikings and very long on Alexander Skarsgård shirtlessly slaughtering people.
2: Yes, uh, we should say, you know, if you haven't read it and you're listening to this, The New Yorker did a recent profile of Robert Eggers in which they talk about the uh, Daniel Day-Lewis extent of his historical research for his movies, of, you know, how he sourced period props, he designed things after the historical research. He went very, very deep into it. Does that pay off? Does that make the movie worth seeing, Julia?
1: I'm glad I saw this movie. For three reasons. One, it is really artfully made. All of that research pays off in a really thoroughly rendered world that I haven't spent a lot of time in cinematically or otherwise lately. And I enjoyed the beautiful Icelandic huts and the barbaric berserker pillaging. I mean, I can't say I enjoyed the pillaging, but I enjoyed the authenticity of the pillaging, I guess. So reason one Eggers was a costume and production designer before he became a director, and I love to show up for costume and production design, and they do not disappoint. We should say that in addition to shirtlessly slaughtering people, Alexander Skarsgård slaughters people in kind of like, you know, a burlap tunic, and then he gets upgraded into kind of like a finer woven. He also slaughters people in that, so he's agnostic. Shirts and skins agnostic.
3: Well, and naked in the climactic scene. There's also
1: some naked slaughtering. Yeah, there's slaughtering galore. So reason one, Really interesting world, really beautiful to look at. Also, a subset of that is Eggers has made these very small films and partnered with Alexander Skarsgård, who's wanted to tell this epic for years and is working with a much bigger budget than the kind of director he is usually gets. And that's interesting. Like, it's just a strange experience to see such a weird headcase of a movie have the budget to have lava flows and beautiful trails of, Horses going across stunning, massive Icelandic shot-on-location vistas. So the weirdness-budget combo is unusual and also makes it worth watching. So that's point one. Point two is Alexander Skarsgård, who is as soulful a lunk, whoever lunked on Hollywood screens. Imagine this movie with, I mean, people have compared it to Conan the Barbarian, you know, Schwarzenegger with, I don't know, Chris Evans. No knock on Chris Evans, who's a fine actor, but just so much depends on the wounded eyes of Alexander Skarsgård as he slaughters and his kind of restrained emotion and the damage that he's portraying to himself as a child. Like, you believe the vengeance and getting male Hollywood actors to enact vengeance isn't the most unusual thing for a movie to do, but I was with him, man. And I had a moment early on where I'm like, man, I usually hate Hamlet because I'm like, just make up your freaking mind. And this guy, this really isn't very much like the Hamlet. It has the plot points of the Hamlet narrative, but its concerns are very much not Those of Hamlet, at least as I understand them, Uh, I'd be curious, Isaac and Dana, if you agree, but it's a lot less dithery and a lot more straightforward in ways that make it maybe less annoying, but also maybe less interesting. (laughs) And then the third reason is that this movie, which, as you heard, is so concerned with sort of masculinity and burly revenge. And, you know, it's all about the perpetuating the line of the king, which like, ugh, snooze a roo. (laughs) It's like the most hyped up addition to the Darwinian imperative of like, oh, my blood is in your blood. You know, they all have these very weird accents also i mean we should just do this whole show and like that pixie spy you know like what are they they, i don't know what accent that is it's like weird movie accent it's not from a location it seems like this movie is going to interestingly subvert this male narrative of dudes so concerned with and insecure about their lineage that they just fuck up everything around them for no goddamn reason and the movie seems like really interestingly Critical of that historical type of manhood for a while. And there are some fabulous scenes where the object of Amleth's rescue, primarily Nicole Kidman, really surprises him when he finally is able to confront her. And that is amazing. And it made me feel like possibly this movie was going to make me fall in love with it by attending to this machismo only to dismantle it. And then in the final third, it just yeah
4: totally gives
1: it up like it's just like nope mckiesmo all the way naked murder pit by the gates of hell like They just go to a lava flow to have a fight. It's it is abandoning reason for cinematicness in a way that just completely lost me. So I was with it for like a hundred and however many minutes. And then the final third, I was like, you blew it. I thought you were lovingly going to the history of macho in order to dismantle it. And instead, you just love it. You're just like burly men. Yes. Lineage protected. Woo.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which I think the film is portraying this world in a way that is very clearly not endorsing it. It's portraying its incredible violence, especially violence against women. And it's savagery, really, with some real complexity. And then it I agree with you that it completely abandons all of that in the final third of the movie. The thing that I respected about the movie the most. And it's the thing that is really interesting about Hamlet as well. The thing that it's doing that Hamlet does is that it asks you, it demands you as the audience buy into. This very alien worldview. And in Hamlet, it's his very alien kind of confrontation between, you know, what's gonna become the Enlightenment and reason and Christianity. Freud kind of ruined this for us, but if you just read the reasons why Hamlet doesn't Actually, go and kill his uncle. They make a lot of sense within the world of the play. And it really demands that you understand that Hamlet is afraid of going to hell. He's afraid the ghost is a demon. He's afraid if he kills the uncle at the wrong moment, the uncle will go to heaven. Those are real fears and not procrastination. Similarly, Amleth has been given a series of prophecies that he has to fulfill before he can wreak his horrible justice. And so he also has a bunch of chances to just. And the story of this movie very quickly. And he keeps putting it off because he has to have the right sword. He has to do the right other things. He has to bring him to the gates of hell for the confrontation and all that stuff. So that I really admired about it, but I do think that there's a way in which, and I thought this about the lighthouse too, that Eggers gets so lost in the historical research and so lost in the kind of experience of the world that he stops sort of figuring out what the story Story He's telling is or what it's going to mean in some way. And so I'm left at the end of both of those movies with kind of like, I feel like I just watched a long, beautiful, nihilistic exercise and that very little of it stays with me beyond the design or in this case, the score. I don't know. Am I being unfair, Dana?
3: I mean, I felt that way much more about The Lighthouse than about this movie, although I think that that could be said in a way about all three of Edgar's movies so far, The Witch, Mm -hmm. The Lighthouse and now The Northmen always the plus noun, that's his title format. He likes to go hard, you know, with his production design and also with his subject matter. And he has a little bit, he's still a young man, right? He's 38 years old. He's been making movies since his mid thirties. And his movies do have a little bit of like a edgelord metalhead quality, you know, that that can be off-putting. I think that He's reaching for something that is more interesting than that. And you see it in this movie, for example, in the dream sequences. I think the fantasy sequences that show things like this ancestor tree that Amleth sees at one point in his childhood, he has this kind of vision of the lineage of kings of Norway. And the way that vision is evoked is really original and beautiful and seems to be actually tying in this kind of fantasy about the historical worlds of the past that we can no longer completely inhabit with the actual subject matter of the story. But in many other scenes, that doesn't seem to be happening. And I have to say that while I was always impressed by the artistry of this movie, and I'm not even sure I agree with you both that the ending was a pure gung-ho uh, affirmation of masculinity. I think it's it's a pretty bleak vision of the dead end that that kind of battle can lead to. Isaac, I guess one big question that I had for you this whole time, and I've seen this in a few different critical reactions, and Julia said just the opposite. So I'm very interested, especially as someone who just wrote a book on acting and method acting and different acting styles, what you think of Alexander Skarsgård's performance. Because I've seen a few different people say, here's a very specific argument I heard one critic make that they couldn't figure out why this movie wasn't coming to life for them when it was so beautifully done. And then Nicole Kidman's big scene came, which we won't spoil, but it kind of pushes things into a more campy realm, and it's a whole different thing. And, you know, there's this frisson of the fact that these two, Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman, have played husband and wife in an abusive relationship before in Big Little Lies, and now they're mother and son in a kind of abusive relationship. Anyway, this person, this critic said... And in that moment, the movie snapped to life, and I realized that what the movie needed the whole time was a star, a movie star, and that Alexander Skarsgård is as talented as he is and as much work as he put into, you know, getting buff and the historical research for this role just doesn't have that frisson or charisma of a movie star. And I wondered if, as somebody who analyzes acting a lot, you felt that in his performance.
2: That's interesting. I agree with Julia that there is a soulfulness that he brings to the role, and also a lunkheadedness. There is something about... Skarsgård on film and everything I've seen where he just radiates not being particularly bright. I don't think that has anything to do with him as a human being. Do you know what I mean? He seems like a perfectly smart, great guy. It's just that on camera, part of his screen presence is a certain amount of lunkheadedness. I don't know. I mean, they made the choice to do this Amleth legend and jettison all of the intelligence of the character. So this Amleth, unlike the original, does not pretend to be mad. He doesn't do all the stuff that Hamlet does in Hamlet. Instead, he comes back and then he just starts torturing and murdering people. And I think that's just not that interesting a thing to do with... A character. I think that Scarsguard has a lot of restraint as an actor, which I admire, but it's very weird to hang a blockbuster on a restrained performance. You know, the closest analog to this movie that I kept going back to is Gladiator, which is a ridiculous movie, but also a very fun movie to watch. That movie is filled with huge, campy, blockbustery performances. And I think Scarsguard's going for something different here. And it's not a bad performance so much as it is a signal of how there's a bunch of different competing impulses in this movie, which are part of what makes it interesting, but also I think ultimately what make it unsuccessful.
1: Huh? That's such an interesting analysis. I don't think his succession character seems dumb. I think his succession character is good at pretending right. to seem dumb, but we'll see what happens next season. But uh, Dana, you asked the question and it's so interesting. It didn't even occur to me to think of him as the weakness in the movie because I feel like he was the only reason I cared. What did you make of the performance?
3: I mean, I didn't emotionally connect with the movie, and I'm trying to figure out why. And when I heard this person confidently assert, oh, well, it's because Nicole Kidman is a movie star and Alexander Skarsgård's not, it seemed like it is true that the movie takes on a different tone when her character comes into focus. But I think that that may be because of the way she's playing the character rather than her status as a movie star. In other words, she's playing in a more camp register than anyone else. So naturally the movie is going to crackle in a different way. Whereas, as you say, Skarsgård is very soulful, playing it very straight. And yeah, playing it like someone who has one single motivation. He's not a Hamlet right? He's not a guy who's complexly debating metaphysics as he considers slaughtering his uncle. He just wants to quaff <laughs> his uncle's hot blood as quickly as possible. And that is maybe just not interesting enough of a motivation for a whole movie. I, I wouldn't pin it on Scarsgard really. I just wanted to hear Isaac's thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the movie crackles to life when Nicole comes in because it makes it seem like it's about to be a much smarter movie. And then it recedes. The smartness
2: recedes. Yes, agreed. All right. Well, the film is The Northman, written and directed by Robert Eggers. If you see it, let us know what you think. Moving on. Now we've come to the part of the show where we do the business. Dana, what have you got for us?
3: Isaac, today we are answering a listener question in our Slate Plus segment, and uh, it's a really funny one. So our only business is to tell you all that in our Slate Plus segment today, we are talking about consuming culture while stoned, and or I guess drunk could be included as well, but I think this writer was specifically writing in about watching a movie while high and whether appreciating a work of art that is experienced in that state is an act of disrespect to the work of art. And we thought that we would branch that out into, yeah, just in general, our sort of history of and thoughts about consuming culture in an altered state. So I love that topic. I'm really curious to talk to you guys about it. If you are a Slate Plus subscriber, you can hear that at the end of this show. If you're not, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and subscribe today. And when you subscribe, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and of course, you get all of the Slate culture content you can consume without ever hitting a paywall. Once again, go to slate.com slash culture plus and please support our show. It's really important to us and to all of our great colleagues at Slate. All right, Isaac, what's next?
2: All right, now is the time when we hear from one of our sponsors. Dana, what have you got for us?
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for
1: Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
2: Russian Doll recently returned for a second season on Netflix. The show, which stars and is now run by Natasha Lyonne, follows Nadia Volvikov, an aging avatar of everything we associate with the real New York of the past. Fast talking, chain smoking, drug taking, ranting about how things used to be better in the old days. In season one, Nadia wound up in a groundhog day-like time loop on her 36th birthday. In season two, Nadia, now nearing 40, discovers a particular downtown 6 turn that can take her back into her mother and grandmother's lives, Quantum Leap style. In this clip, Nadia and fellow time traveler Alan debate the ethics of meddling in the past. Let's take a listen. I I like spending time there. It's, It's nice not to have to worry what people think when they see me.
3: Alan, the only reason to go into the past is to change shit, all right? I mean, haven't you ever seen a movie?
2: Yes, Nadia, and I know that you won't believe me when I say this, but I have seen a movie and literally every movie about time travel says don't change things that's that's why this is this is so great this is nadia nadia don't don't mess this up
3: don't worry i am done with the 80s it turns out it's not all cabbage patch kids and
4: cocaine
2: (laughs) all right julia russian doll had a very satisfying and to me totally self-contained first season it's been off the air for a few years was it worth coming back to it and opening this story back up
4: oh, I
1: really wanted to be the person who sang the extolling praises of this show because I loved the first season so much. But I'm afraid I must class myself among the camp of critics who say, wow, this got a little sprawling and unwieldy in season two and the performances are still great and Natasha Lyonne is still wonderful and uh, its concerns are ambitious and interesting and I admire it. But, like, the beauty of the first season was that it was a gimmick show that had something to say. The problem with the plot gimmick, the kind of time hop, Groundhog Day, any kind of narrative that relies on a brain-twisting gimmick like that is that it can get caught up in its own feet and be so excited about its own gimmick that it doesn't actually have anything to say about the world. And the miracle of the first season of Russian Doll was that it used this trope to say something that felt really profound and personal about Growth and generosity and human connection and the alienation of society. Like it was one of those miraculous cultural products that pulled off something very, very difficult. And I think in season two, the mechanism is just a lot less tidy, like they can take trains into the past, but sometimes the trains go different places and sometimes they go to different parts of the past. And then how can you get back? And if you can get back whenever you want, can't you just not go there? And they address some of this over time, but like, it's just not as tidy as that sort of opening episode in the first season where you get, you get the problem and you get the, the construct of the world. And I missed it. It felt a little sprawling to me.
2: Yeah. In the first season, the mechanics are simple. Every time she dies, she goes back to her, the night of her 36th birthday. And the mechanics in this one are very complicated and take a lot of time to kind of figure out. Dana, what did you make of this?
3: I mean, I think Julia kind of spoke my mind just now, which makes me very sad, too. Maybe, I don't know, maybe even sadder. I'm not sure, Julia. I can't remember when we talked about it now because it was so long ago, but... I was passionate about the first season of Russian Doll and I still think it's one of the best just freestanding seasons of television of, you know, the past at least five years or so of shows that we've talked about. And yeah, like you, Julia, I think what I loved the most about it was its shapeliness, the fact that it was so tightly structured and it didn't have what I so often feel to be that TV sprawl of sort of like, it gets its legs after episode 12 or whatever. You know, it was a (laughs) a show that knew where it wanted to go and it went there It had a beginning, middle and end. I agree, Isaac, that the ending, specifically the actual montage and music, you know, just the very last scene was something that haunted me afterwards for so long. I thought it was just... Such a beautiful balance of sort of tying up all the threads without making it into a cheesy, happy ending, that it had a kind of a melancholy and soulfulness, and that it completed its story. It completed the arc of both of those characters, the Charlie Barnett character, Alan, and Natasha Leon's character, Nadia, so beautifully that when I heard there was a second season, I thought, okay, bravo, Natasha, and yes, I'll definitely watch it, but where else is there left to go? I do think, though, I have to say in defense of the second season that it was biting off more and it was being made by someone who had never run a show before. I mean, I'm not saying that we grade it on a curve because it's somebody who's new to the practice of running a show. But Natasha Leone took on a lot here. If you read a little bit about her own background, and there was a wonderful profile of her in The New Yorker recently that got into all this she went through a lot of the things that the character in this show does and had parents that were dysfunctional in similar ways. And so she's going to these really dark autobiographical places in the story that she's trying to tell. And to tie all that up in what I think is just a seven episode season, it's actually, I believe, an episode shorter than the first season, but it feels longer and more sprawling. It's just, it's a little bit too much to manage. I mean, there's family Holocaust history in there and there's various periods to balance. And there's the whole character of Alan, right? I mean, who in the first season, it was almost an equal balance between how much we saw of Nadia's time loop and of his time loop and how they both sort of used their friendship to resolve those time loops together. And here he has a really complex and difficult time travel story in which he is actually, it goes into his grandmother's body for reasons that we never fully understand. So he's not only experiencing Life in a different time frame, but as a woman instead of a man for the first time, and he starts to fall in love with a man. And it's this really psychologically complex arc that he has to complete, and it's given maybe one third of the time of her arc. So there were just structural problems to me where it sort of seemed like it reminds me a little bit of Charlie Kaufman and how he worked at his best when he was with Spike Jones. You know, I think he always has, in my opinion, and he needs. That shaping on his imagination. I felt like maybe Natasha needed some of that shaping, but at the same time, she's just, she's such a great force in the culture that I don't want to be one of the voices saying, I want less Natasha Leone's brain. I want much more of Natasha Leone's brain, but I don't think this season is quite there yet. Another thing to say in its defense, it is apparently. The envisioned second season of Russian Doll. So it's possible, as one always says about middle chapters of a trilogy, that this ends on the note it does, which is the opposite of that kind of sublime satisfaction. I mean, the ending of this is really quite bleak, I thought, that maybe the third season will jump in and rescue some of that.
2: But are you interested in watching the third season to find out?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I watched this season for all of my negative comments about it. I watched it in basically two big gulps. And I do appreciate that it's still short. It may feel a little bit longer and more sprawling, but I really appreciate that the show gets it done in just seven half-hour episodes. I mean, even the difference between an hour-long episode of TV and a half-hour, you know, a half-hour episode is just so much easier to imbibe quickly and... I really appreciate that more European, British model of here. Here's, you know, six quick episodes of something and you're done.
2: What about you, Julia? Are you going to return to see what the rest of the story is or are you sort of over it?
1: I don't know. I'm a little bit. I was not pulled in. I'm not confident I'm going to watch this until years from now and then maybe I'll go back to it. I mean, one of the things that is difficult about it is this show is such a great showcase for Natasha Leone, And she is such an amazing figure who has had a fascinating career, is a wonderful actress, has done so many different things, has suffered so much personal trauma, has been through her own difficulties, has been able to work through addiction and past addiction. Like, And she's been very open about this. And that's part of what made the honesty and the kind of transcendent human message of the first season so powerful was this feeling of rooting for this incredible artist who against all the odds in middle age and what is lucky to be middle-aged given the trajectory of her life to make something beautiful that spoke to both people who'd been on similar journeys to hers and people whose journeys have been totally different. So you root for her. And the thing I found discomforting about this season is she's, you know, she's has more creative control. She's more in charge. She's more the author of it. And yet the pitches seem more wobbly. Like it's just really hard to like direct and star in a story that's reckoning with like your whole complicated family history plus balance the story for the other two-hander, and it just, it, it, it doesn't quite pull it off with the same panache. And I just feel bummed because I'm rooting for her so much and I enjoy her so much. And I even felt that the way that her character reads on the screen this season feels a little more mannered, like the swagger and the
2: patter and the, the New York jokes The wisecracking in response to literally everything that happens on camera.
1: Yeah, she felt a little thinner. Like, weirdly, this season in which this fascinating and valuable and wonderful creator is even more the author of this character based on, in some ways, her own story, somehow felt less real, less three-dimensional, less personal. Like, she felt more like this kind of cardboard New York cutout. And so I fear the show may have lost me against my against my desire. Did you guys have that response?
2: I definitely thought Not to pull the old TV thing, but I do think it does get better after the first two episodes. When I watched the first two episodes, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to be the guy who comes in on this segment and and slams this show, because I just didn't think it was working. And then one of the things that happens is that Alan shows up, and Charlie Barnett is just a wonderful and incredibly charming and endearing screen presence. And it finds more excuses for her to be in scenes with him and with Greta Lee, who plays Nadia's best friend. And I also feel like it's sort of started to get a handle on itself a little bit more. I agree that it is uneven and untidy and undisciplined in a way the first season wasn't. I think that part of that's because it's more ambitious. And part of that is because it's missing the countervailing force of Leslie Headland, who's a writer. She's been a writer for a long time. And I think there's a lot of structural know-how she clearly brought to the table. But I will say that when the show works, I was super into it. The episode where Nadia is in Nazi-occupied Budapest in her grandmother's body, finding her grandmother's best friend who is still a character in her present-day life and trying to find the things that were robbed from her family, I found very moving. And when she's in the present day hanging out with this kind of weird vampiric, Hungarian artist guy, I thought it was very funny in a way that most of the second season was not to me. So I do think that there's glimpses of what the show can be. And there were enough of them that I'm at least intrigued to watch a couple episodes of the third season, but I don't know if I'm all in with it. But I'm also curious about, you know, the second season is so overtly about Trauma and intergenerational trauma and the roots of trauma. And there's recently been, you know, a lot of discourse around why is that the go-to plot all the time? You know, Perul Sagel had a great piece about that, about the trauma plot a couple months ago. And I'm just wondering how you felt about that. Maybe Dana, were you like, oh, another trauma plot?
3: I guess, to me, this didn't ring that way, in part because, I mean, this is in some ways less about psychological trauma than the first season was, because we can, I guess, metaphysically spoil it now, but the first season was sort of about fixing your own repetition compulsions and character flaws and fixing your own stuff so that you can rejoin the world, right? I mean, if you had to kind of boil it down to one message at the end, that's what the two leads had to do. And- what kind of needs to be done in this one is is a little bit different. I guess I don't want to spoil exactly what it is, but it has more to do, as you say, with historical trauma, right? It, it involves some things that are not just going deep into your childhood or into your own brain, but actually into the past and changing material history in some ways.
2: Or trying to, anyway.
3: Right. And whether that can work or not. and. Yeah, there's also personal stuff that she has to fix, but I don't think... In fact, if anything, this show could have used a little bit more of the interior of the Nadia character, because as the two of you say, I mean, sometimes she gets a little bit reduced to her Columbo-style tics, and Columbo is explicitly referenced, in fact, in that Hungry episode. But there are only a few scenes where, where Natasha Leone really gets to just non-wisecrackingly, straightforwardly respond to something horrible that's happening to her or to someone in the story, and they come pretty late in the story. So... This did not seem like a show that was trading on let's watch someone, you know, go through pain. It was more about answering questions about the resolvability of different issues from the past.
2: The show is Russian Dolls Season 2. It is currently streaming on Netflix. Watch it and let us know what you think. Moving on. All right. Now is the time when we hear from another one of our sponsors.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: Be Real. It's something we all struggle with doing online, but now there's an app for that. Be Real is a photo-sharing app that asks users to post an unfiltered photo of whatever they're doing at the moment that app messages you. And it never messages you at the same time of day twice. The app is proving a real fascination for a lot of people and has posted steady, respectable growth numbers, avoiding the boom-bust cycle that has greeted many flash-in-the-pan social media platforms. So are we all that hungry for authenticity? And what's it like using the service? To help us figure that all out, we're joined by Slate Senior Editor Rebecca Onion. Rebecca, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm being real with (laughs) you.
2: So uh, before we get into it, Julia, I hear that you are something of a be real evangelist. Uh, What's your experience been like on it?
1: Uh, evangelist is a strong word. I would say experimenter. I saw this on Instagram. I still use Instagram. Is it just too lame to share that? But Instagram is increasingly turning itself into TikTok in a way that makes it much less interesting to me. Suddenly my feed is full of like weird videos of brides getting dressed and people with makeup hacks and like doing strange things to tuck their hair behind their ears. And it's like, I didn't, what did I look at? Like, I follow like my friends and their kids and some like weird art accounts. Like I haven't like looked at a bridal thing in a hundred years. So I truly do not understand what is being served to me on Instagram. In the midst of this devolving social scape, the journalist and author Jen Romolini posted and podcaster, actually, she does a podcast with Kim France called Everything is Fine posted that she and her friends had been using Be Real and she loved it. And it was like the first social app she'd loved in years because it was all about not faking it. So I was influenced on Instagram by influencer General Romolini and texted my high school friend group, which I'm lucky enough to be able to say includes Rebecca Onion, and was like, hey guys, That's will right. you try a weird new social thing with me? Because it seemed clear that it's the kind of social thing you want to try with people you actually know and care about. It's not the kind that is designed for you to broadcast your life to strangers. It's the kind that's about kind of connecting with the people you actually already know and love. And four of five of us signed on. The one who is wisest and most skeptical about social media was like, fuck no, why, why would I do another one? We've done all of these. They all suck. <laughs> What's wrong with you? But the rest of us jumped off the cliff happily. And it's really interesting. It's really different than... Other social media experiences, it kind of pop quizzes you in the middle of your day, forces you to take a picture of whatever it is you're doing at the moment, takes a picture of what you're looking at and what you look like at that moment. And you have only two minutes to do it. And then you realize you kind of just putter around your house looking like a lunatic all the time is the upshot, (laughs) but that your friends
2: are basically doing the same thing. For most of us, you know, isn't the front facing photo going to be our computer screen yeah. and the the back facing photo going to be us making a weird face with bad hair? I mean, no, Rebecca, you're shaking your head. Tell me, what's the experience like?
0: No, I'm nodding my head. Be Real has made me realize how incredibly boring and afraid of my own face I am all at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it makes you be a little bit creative because it does grab you and it always seems to grab me in my office. Or maybe sometimes, like, in the time of the night where I'm, like, watching TV. Because, like, I'm 44 and I have a child and a job. Like, <laughs> I literally watch TV every night from 8.30 to 9.30 and then go to sleep. And so, I don't know. Like, I tried to find ways to make that look cool to my three friends on Be Real. And it actually sort of makes you be a little bit more creative in some way because you are have a constraint, which is always good for creativity. Except sometimes I just am like, oh, fuck this. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just kind of take another picture of Outer Range on the TV and me looking like frowzy. And I'm always wearing the same headphones. I realize how often I wear my headphones, which is like all the time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> See, that's fascinating because it's called Be Real and you're already trying to figure out how do I make this look more <laughs> constructed know. in the yeah. 120 seconds I have? To compose this photo. Dana, was that your experience too?
3: I mean, my experience of it is keeps changing. I guess I've been doing it now for about two weeks, maybe between 10 days and two weeks, since Julia had this idea for a segment. And at first it was just completely, oh, gotta do this thing, Gabfest segment. Julia wants to do it, click. I also did not want to sign up for a new social media app, nor do I think that Be Real is particularly well designed or well explained. It is a great idea, however. And I guess, first of all, to examine my reaction to it, I would go back to the person who convinced me to be on Instagram back, I don't know, a few years ago. I was already a big Twitter user, and I really didn't want to adapt Instagram. And I remember my response to her being, "Ugh, but I don't want to post selfies all the time. I don't like social media that's all about how you look. And she was saying, oh, but Instagram at its best is not about how you look. It's about what you're looking at which is a great way to think of Instagram. And that is the Instagram I prefer. You know, not that I mind somebody if they look great in some cool new outfit posting a selfie, but I know what my friends look like. I want to see what they see. Right. And the interesting thing about this app is that it captures both at once without really any curation of either one. And so that you really do see what your friends see and I guess what they look like. But I never even think about that. Like, of course, the pictures are going to be unflattering because they're taken with a back facing camera with no preparation wherever you happen to be. Right. So I don't even really glance at my friends' pictures. I know what they look like and I want to see what they see. And even though what you see at that moment might seem boring to you, it gives your friends a glimpse that they might not otherwise have. And so after now about 12 days of using it, I'm kind of into be real. Like for example, Rebecca, you say that you're always in front of the TV, but you have more green space in your pictures that you've been posting than anyone else I see. And I guess that's because you live in Athens, right? I mean, you live in a greener place. And so I see a little bit of, I don't know if it's your yard or the fields near your house, but you're like walking in a beautiful green space. And that's a great little glimpse into your life. And the other day, I was in what seemed to me a very visually boring place. But then I realized, and I said this in my caption on Be Real, that it is actually a real snapshot of my life at this moment in time, which is that I was at the Staples outlet near my house, which has a UPS, you know, sending whatever they call it, a little UPS center in it. And I've been going there all the time because of my book. Like since January 25th, the day my book came out, I probably several times a week, you know, wheeled dollies of books to that UPS and packed them up and sent them express to various people and fielded all kinds of inquiries and things about, my book at the UPS. And so there's this little spot behind the big rolls of acrylic bubble wrap that I just crouch and do my book signing or whatever. And I've done that dozens of times in the past three months, right? So having a little record of that, it may look to you like, oh, she's just crouched in the aisle at a Staples. But looking back on that for me will be interesting because I'll remember when that staples played such a big role in my daily life. So I guess I like that about Be Real. I like the mundanity of it and that it it affirms mundanity in a way. I don't like the you must do this in two minutes thing popping up, that notification popping up during your day. Not because I want to curate my photo and make it all cute and wonderful, but just I have enough moments during the day when somebody's saying, stop what you're doing and do this other thing. And I wish that it was couched a little bit more like, You know, that you have two minutes to do it, but it doesn't have to be at the same time as the other people or something. I don't think that's super well explained. And I don't enjoy that feeling.
1: Yeah, to be clear, you can post late. So you're supposed to do it within the two minutes. But if, for example, you don't see the notification till the end of your meeting or your therapy session or your hang with your kids, you can just do it late. And I actually find its nudginess sort of pleasing. Like, Because it's just so random. It's like playing a game. Like sometimes I've been in like, oh, this is an interesting space. Maybe I'll get my notification and I can show this part of my life. And then it's like, nope, just back at the computer. Like just yesterday, I had been like having an interesting conversation in a beautiful outdoor location. And then I got back to my office and it was like, bing. I was like, God damn it. Everybody's seen so much of this (laughs) office. But you kind of quickly pick up, you can post late. It just labels it that it's late. So you can kind of like Tell If people are being a little too curatey, whenever I get the late notification, my like own personal ethos with the app is I just post as soon as I get it, as soon as I see it and I'm like free to do oh. it. I like don't curate it at all. It's yeah. literally just like, where was I when I saw it and I was free to do it? Like whatever that is so that it's like truly unaestheticized. And I will say I edited a piece for Slate by Simon Dunan, the wonderful Simon Dunan, sometime guest on this show called In Defense of the Selfie. I don't know, maybe five, six, seven years ago in which he, it felt like a personal attack. He was like, all these stupid Instagram accounts of like your artful sidewalk cracks and your gorgeous sunsets and like the palm tree that's canted just so. Like people like people. They want to see what people are doing. You know, you are not being an egotistical duck face idiot by posting selfies. You are giving people what they want, which is human connection with other people. And I like people. They want to see what people are doing. Stop. You are not being an egotistical duck face idiot by posting selfies. You are giving people what they want, which is human connection with other people. And I really began to see my own doofy Instagram posting tendencies in a different light after editing that piece. But I still don't post selfies because that's just not my jam. So I kind of like that this app is like forcing me to reveal myself to a select group of people it's also it very much matters who you curate there aren't that many people on the app yet when i went on it it suggested to me a couple colleagues past and present who i admire respect love dearly but don't want to have this relationship with and i was like hell no i'm not going to do that and i was speaking to one of them afterwards about it and i was like oh i saw you on there but i was like i'm not adding her and she was like if you had added me i would not have accepted that's not what this (laughs) app is for (laughs)
0: This is for people that you are in like iMessage groups with, like group text kind of people.
1: Right. It's kind of like taking the group chat. It's like a game for your group chat, basically, like a visual game for your group chat. And it's pretty fun. Although I think, I don't think we will be doing this Mm -hmm. for 10 years. Like I feel like I'm going to have a lot of fun doing this for like, I don't know, two, three more months maybe. And then like it'll kind of peter out.
2: Well, and also, if you add too many people, you know, there's the risk that you try to be competitively real. You know, it's like the competitiveness of Instagram comes to be real. And you're like, actually, I have to, like, knock one of my teeth out so I look even worse in this uh, selfie or something.
3: I must pick my nose in my selfie to <laughs> yeah. seem even more unposed. Take
0: a picture of dirty dishes or whatever.
2: Just the shittiest parts of your day. It's like I have to line <laughs> yeah. them all up so I can photograph them and be realer. Uh, you know, one thing that I think is is curious about this yeah. whole thing as well is that at some point it's going to have to make money, right? What is there to monetize about this experience? Rebecca, do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Oh my God, that never even occurred to me. But of course, of course it'll have to make money. Like Julia, I anticipate only using it for a couple more months. And I also do not anticipate like seeking out growth on it or like trying to become a person who has like a lot of be real followers, be realers. I don't know.
2: A be real fluencer?
0: Yeah, I don't think be real fluencers will exist. Like, I don't know, maybe it's very science fiction to sort of imagine that they might, like who could be like the best at this. But I just don't see, I don't see how. What's your monetization scheme for it, Isaac? Do you think it's possible? I don't
2: have one. I'm really, you know, I agree with you. It seems like a fun toy for a group chat and almost sort of like a self-help intervention for the extremely online. You know, you sort of want to um, give it to the main character from Ingrid Goes West and be like, try this. But I don't sort of understand, and maybe this is because of my own hopelessness about human nature in the social media era, I sort of don't understand how it's going to survive and make money and grow and do all the things that these platforms normally have to do.
1: It's like has the opposite of a growth imperative. I mean, that conversation between me and my colleague about it is like, that's the end of it right there. It's like, I know you. I like you. I respect you. I enjoy your company. I definitely don't fucking want you to see my B-reels. This thing is toast. It's toast. I mean, the other thing is like, what's going to go in it? Ads? You know, like what kind of ad goes in here? And then as soon as Makeup
2: removers. It'll be like all artifice removal ads, right? Makeup removers. I
1: will say it has a couple tech innovations that I think are good. I do like the real-time nudge, the sort of like- What are you doing at the moment? It feels like a game. It feels it still feels really fun to me. They also have something called the real emoji, which is one way to respond to your friends' pictures of the day. Is instead of using a emoji, you can take a picture of your face making a face, and that's the emoji. Like it's like a a way to make a little like single use photo emoji of yourself, like liking or being horrified by something. And those two technological innovations, I feel like the real emoji might transcend. Be real.
3: You know, an interface improvement that it could make, I think, is if you could look at your friends' histories. You can only, as far as I can tell from my usage of it, look at your own old photos. And your friends all disappear after they post each one, so you can't go look through the ones from previous days. And given that this app, as we were saying, operates by this time imperative where it's kind of barking at you to take a picture all the time. I mean, you just, I can't schedule my day around looking at people's pictures. And the fact that they disappear makes me sad. I had a comment on one of yours, Rebecca, the very first one I saw you post. I had a dumb, but I thought funny comment on it that I couldn't post because it then disappeared from my timeline. Oh,
2: So I have one final question, which is, do you feel like using Be Real has in any way altered the way you think about your behavior on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever? Because it seems to me that part of the weirdness of the age we live in is that we know that we're performing all the time on social media. And then we also know that everyone else is performing all the time on social media. And it creates this kind of weird anxiety, at least for me, anxiety feedback loop. So I just don't know. Does it heighten? your awareness of how affected you are elsewhere, how affected other people are, or or is it just its own kind of siloed off fun thing?
1: Every other app that I use, I have joined for the purposes of discussing on this podcast. Amazing. I think maybe (laughs) Facebook predates the podcast, but like I joined Instagram for the Slate Culture Gap Fest. I joined Twitter for the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Like I've literally never, almost never joined a social app that wasn't as my journalistic public persona with an assumed potential audience of everyone who listens to this show and the general public.
2: The things you do for art.
1: I joined Ello for this podcast, indelibly to all of us.
3: <laughs> Life irrevocably changed. <laughs> Aww, I feel that Be real is
1: a lot more fun than Elo, but I fear it may go the way that, that Ello went. So it's fun to use social media in a way that just feels much less public and much more personal. I mean, being a journalist is so weird because you're like, you you have a public self, but nobody gives a shit about it. But you do sort of have this explicit sense of a public self as part of your work. Like it's not like being famous or anything like that, but it's you're used to that bifurcation. Podcasting exacerbates it, accentuates it, I think. But it's fun to have a little personal playground. Like I, I guess I just feel like I'm discovering the joy of the non-professional
2: social media.
1: And it's kind of fun. It's like, oh, no wonder we all like got into this and then like drove society off of a cliff. It's compelling.
2: Well, on that note, the app is called Be Real, and you can uh, check it out if you like, and then uh, let us know your very authentic opinions about it. Rebecca Onion, Slate Senior Editor, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the app.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Now we've come to the part of the show where we endorse stuff. Dana, what have you got?
3: Isaac, I had at first an endorsement dilemma this week and then the internet resolved it for me. The idea of endorsements is that we talk about the most affecting cultural experience that we had in the previous week. And for me, that was indubitably a trip to a museum that I think may be my first trip to a real museum since the pandemic started, which doesn't speak very well for my museum going habits because there have probably been, I don't know, over a year now that I would have been comfortable going to a museum under the right circumstances, but I just haven't. But this past weekend, my family and I went together as a celebration of my partner's birthday to the Holbein exhibit, the Hans Holbein exhibit at the Morgan Library and Museum, which is this incredible research library, archive, and art display space in Midtown in New York. There's nothing that the Morgan does that isn't good. In fact, we joined. We got a membership when we, after we saw this exhibit because we just thought we want to be able to wander in and out of this wonderful space whenever we possibly can, and there are only 12 days left to see this Holbein exhibit. So I didn't want to endorse it because I don't like, first of all, doing endorsements that are geographically specific that not everyone can access. And secondly, to give everybody just 12 days to who even could geographically get there to go to the Morgan. But then I went to their website and discovered that they have a really, really great version of this online. I'm not sure if it will remain online after the show is over, but you can listen to audio, which I presume is the clips that you'd hear in the audio tour if you got it. It looks like about, I don't know, 25, 30 different pieces from the show, maybe even more. And they are wonderful reproductions of them. And you can basically have a complete virtual experience of this exhibit, or maybe not quite complete, but pretty damn good. I would not doubt that the audio is incredible. I haven't listened to it yet. But if you go to a link on their website and we'll provide it on our show page, you can do a great virtual tour of the Hans Holbein exhibit. He, of course, being the great portraitist of, you know, the sort of mid 16th century, um, really, really famous, beautiful paintings that you've probably seen in lots of reproductions. But you really, really learn a lot about, you know, the early culture of books and about Erasmus, the philosopher and writer that he was constantly painting and drawing and about jewelry design, which is something else that Holbein did and just so, so much about the early modern period this fantastic Holbein exhibit.
2: Amazing, amazing. And Julia, what have you got?
1: All right, well, first of all, I want to continue my RFP for people to explain the culture of snorkeling to me. I've gotten several wonderful emails from listeners, but I still, the basic consensus seems to be, yes, if you snorkel, it's because you love to see fish, but no, there is not an e-bird for fish or uh, the same kind of like, nerdy counting culture that exists in bird culture, possibly because fish are just too varied and numerous. Unclear yet, still looking for submissions there. So thank you very much to all snorkel and marine and bird enthusiasts who've helped me untangle this world. Still working on it, still welcoming your thoughts and your knowledge. I appreciated in particular one email from a birder with a marine biologist sister. That was like a crucial piece of the puzzle. So still sussing that out. We'll report back. My endorsement this week is just an internet delight, an old school internet delight, just someone making something funny on the internet. I endorse to you Grunge Frazier. Have you guys seen Grunge Fraser? Yeah, it's amazing.
3: No, so, oh, what is grunge Fraser?
1: It's just like a re reimagined Fraser in which these kind of natty elites of Seattle are obsessed with just grunge. And so It's like a little rotating gif where Fraser says he's going out to see Pearl Jam and Niall says he can't go because Maris would be so upset because she threw his copy of the album into the koi pond. Like it just it requires deep knowledge of Fraser and its types of jokes and very mild knowledge of grunge (laughs) and the Seattle sound. And it's just a funny idea. Obviously they're audio dudes from Seattle. Like it is sort of thematically appropriate, but I never would have thought of it. Anyway, worth a laugh if you are at all charmed by or familiar with that show.
2: Well, I'm going to endorse two books that relate to things we discussed on the show today. The first is The Broken Sword, a fantasy novel by Paul Anderson written in the mid-20th century. And like The Northmen, it's a kind of pastiche of Icelandic sagas. In this case, it's about Scaflock, the son of Orm the Strong, who is kidnapped and raised by elves and plays a key role in a war between the elves and trolls. It's a wonderful fantasy novel. It really nails both both the tropes and the prose styles of those sagas in a really sophisticated and satisfying way. If you like Tolkien or George R. R. Martin or Authorian legend, or you liked the Northmen... I think you have to read it. It's really delightful. And the other, this is a novel, actually, I will say it's by a friend. So, you know, full disclosure, but the new novel, Happy For You by Claire Stanford. It's about a young half-Japanese, half-Jewish woman named Evelyn Kominsky Kumamoto, who quits her PhD in philosophy to join the world's third largest internet company, which is hard at work at making an app that will track and increase your happiness. Is such a thing possible? And can someone as stuck in between various stages of life as Evelyn possibly be happy? Uh, This book is a funny, wise, it's beautifully written. I devoured it in three days. It's examining much of the same territory as Sally Rooney's Beautiful World, Where Are You?, which we discussed on the show one time when I was a guest. But I think it's much, much more successful at it. So I hope you will check it out. All right, that's all the time we have this week for our show. Dana, Julia, thank you so much for letting me co-host with you all this week. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Isaac. It was really fun.
2: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us your thoughts at culturefest at slate.com. Special thanks to our guest this week, Rebecca Onion. Our intro music is by Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. An additional production was provided by Jessamine Molly. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Isaac Butler.